As a reminder, this podcast is made by Cardiology Fellows to enhance the educational experience in the CVICU. The content is not verified by host or speakers, and the content provided by this podcast is not intended as medical advice. All opinions represented are our own and do not represent the opinions of our employer. Welcome to CVICU On The Go, an educational podcast focused on key topics relevant to management of CVICU patients. Today, we're going to talk about the approach to the management of ventricular tachycardia, and we're excited to have our expert discussant, Dr. Jay Montgomery, here with us today. Dr. Montgomery is a beloved electrophysiologist here at Vanderbilt and is also the associate director of the EP Fellowship Program, so we're very glad to have him join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, So, Dr. Montgomery, I'd like to start by presenting you a case, and we'll then ask you to discuss your approach to the workup and the management of this patient. But please feel free to jump in at any time. So, to start off with our case, Mr. A is a 65-year-old gentleman with a history of coronary artery disease, status post a cabbage in 2005, ischemic cardiomyopathy with an EF of 40%, who presents with palpitations and fatigue. In the emergency room, he's found to be in a wide complex tachycardia, that's consistent with ventricular tachycardia by multiple ECG criteria. He complains of palpitations and mild chest discomfort. His blood pressure is 90 over 60, and he is mentating appropriately. The ED calls you, the CCU resident, for management recommendations. So Dr. Montgomery, I just want to start by discussing this scenario. I think for patients who are clearly unstable, it's perhaps almost easier in a way to manage as per ACLS guidelines. But I find that it's these patients that are in that in-between area or gray zone of borderline instability or symptoms that can be more challenging. So how do you approach clinically borderline cases of VT? Sure. So the first thing that needs to happen in a case like this is to make sure that the patient is connected to an external defibrillator, which usually the emergency department has done. And then you can determine how stable is your patient. Um, If this patient's having a normal conversation with you, um, the blood pressure is really not that important. It seems to be adequate for that patient. Um, Conversely, if your patient's subtunded and is in a wide complex rhythm, you should probably assume the rhythm is the cause, though that's not always guaranteed, especially in the case of electrolyte abnormalities or metabolic derangements. One thing that is sometimes overlooked, an adjunct to an arterial pressure waveform in these situations is the pulse oximetry waveform. So if your pulse oximetry shows a good pulsatility, then the arterial pressure is reasonably pulsatile with a fair amount of forward flow, though that doesn't tell you what the actual pressure is. So once you've sort of established that very minimal baseline of stability, we can go on to how do we fix this rhythm for somebody who is at least somewhat stable. So we have a few goals. Uh, Goal number one is to keep the patient safe. Um, But goal number two is to make this as painless as possible. And a weight cardioversion is probably the safest thing to do in the moment, but no one likes it, and the patient may never come back to seek medical attention again if you do that. Um, And it's not something that I would personally do in a patient who is remotely stable. I don't think I've ever personally um, performed a cardioversion in somebody who kind of walked in in a, a... you know, pseudo-stable VT. A sedated cardioversion, um, slightly less safe just because sedation may depress hemodynamics in addition to um, suppressing respiration. 
but it's much better tolerated psychologically. So that's the cardioversion piece. Drugs might be a good option for presumed VT, but they do take an unpredictable amount of time to work and can depress hemodynamics in some cases. And then oftentimes the best option if the patient has a defibrillator is to get the corresponding programmer, the defibrillator programmer, an attempt pace termination, which is also known as anti-tachycardia pacing or ATP. So pace termination, like almost any intervention, can go one of three ways. It can get better, it can get worse, or it can stay the same. Um, and because one of those options is that it gets worse, pace termination should be done in a controlled environment by someone who's familiar with ICD programmers, and that's typically a cardiology fellow. So for this patient, it's his first presentation with wide complex tachycardia, and he does not have a defibrillator or ICD, so that option for him is off the table. Got it. So that's a very helpful overview on how to approach stable versus unstable VT. So in someone who's coming in with a wide complex tachycardia, how would you approach the differential? Yeah, so just to take one step back, wide complex tachycardia represents either ventricular tachycardia, which we call VT, or supraventricular tachycardia, which we call SVT, and that's supraventricular tachycardia with aberrant conduction, or sometimes less frequently, pre-excitation. So SVT with aberrancy typically has a QRS morphology, which is generally consistent with either a right or a left bundle branch block, and it should have a sharp QRS onset. So the idea is that if it's a supraventricular rhythm, you're depolarizing down either the right or the left bundle. Even if one of them is blocked, you're depolarizing down the other one, and you have a nice sharp QRS onset. VT, on the other hand, can have virtually any morphology depending on what part of the ventricle or conduction system the VT arises or exits from. So almost as important as the EKG morphology is the patient's scenario and comorbidities. An elderly patient with coronary disease is much more likely to be in VT, while a healthy 25-year-old is more likely to have SVT with aberrancy. Wide complex rhythms can occur with regular or irregular intervals. Um, if it's very irregularly irregular, that favors atrial fibrillation, even if the QRS complex is wide. Though VT can be somewhat irregular, um, it's usually not irregular to the same degree that atrial fib is. And then lastly, if the morphology of the QRS is just constantly changing, that's known as polymorphic VT. Um, and so typically, if you're seeing that, you're not really going down the SVT versus VT um, algorithm. The more clinically stable the patient, maybe the more important these distinctions are and the more time you have to figure it out. As you mentioned already, um, if your patient is, you know, pulseless or, or nearly so, these distinctions are, are somewhat less important and, and um, electrical cardioversion or defibrillation is the right treatment. Got it. Okay. So back to our patient, um, DC cardioversion is deferred just given his relative stability. Uh, it's felt that his wide complex tachycardia is consistent with ventricular tachycardia that is monomorphic. So Dr. Montgomery, since we're deferring cardioversion in this clinical scenario, what are the initial chemical management options that we should keep in mind? Sure. So um, when we're thinking about medications for VT, first of all, amiodarone is a reasonable option. Um, amiodarone slows cardiac conduction through class 1 antiarrhythmic activity, that's sodium channel blocking. And it also prolongs the action potentials through class 3 activity, which is potassium channel blocking. It also has activity against beta, uh, beta receptors and uh, calcium channels, and it's a reasonable drug for uh, both termination of VT and to prevent further episodes of VT. 
So typical dosing of amiodarone is 150 milligrams IV as a bolus, and then a drip starting at one milligram per minute. And that typically continues for six hours, at which point we often decrease to half a milligram per minute. Now, because the amiodarone has so many mechanisms of action, it tends to be at least somewhat effective against arrhythmias of many different mechanisms, including atrial arrhythmias and automatic arrhythmias. The biggest drawback to amiodarone in the acute setting is a long half-life, which is actually measured in weeks. And so that potentially makes uh, your VT non-inducible in the event that your patient goes for a VT ablation. And we can discuss that more later. Amiodarone has a small negative effect on blood pressure, and it prolongs the QT interval, but with a fairly low incidence of torsade. Long-term side effects of amiodarone um, include serious ocular, thyroid, hepatic, and pulmonary toxicities, which can be potentially fatal. So that's amiodarone. Um, second drug, lidocaine. Uh, lidocaine is an antiarrhythmic uh, whose primary effect is by slowing cardiac conduction through sodium channel blockade. The effect is limited to the ventricles, and because of a narrower mechanism, lidocaine is probably slightly less effective than amiodarone, though it does have a short half-life, which makes it an ideal choice for patients destined for an inpatient VT ablation. Lidocaine toxicity, which becomes relevant fairly often, typically manifests as altered mental status and seizures, but can potentially lead to coma or cardiac arrest. And lidocaine is often overdosed in patients with heart failure and hepatic dysfunction, uh, which just so happens to be the patients in whom we would like to use it most of the time. So the recommended dosing on the package insert on up to date and in our EHR recommends a drip of one to four milligrams per minute. So with that, a large number of patients become lidotoxic, and it's maybe the worst recommended dosing range of any drug that I am personally aware of. So we're actually in the process of establishing a new order set at Vanderbilt for lidocaine to, for arrhythmias. Um, basically, it's reasonable to give a lidocaine bolus of up to 100 milligrams, sometimes reasonable to give less, and to start a drip at around 1 milligram a minute with a lidocaine level to be drawn 12 hours after starting and every 24 hours afterwards. Um, we usually stop lidocaine 8 to 12 hours prior to a VT ablation. Now, one good thing is that lidocaine and amiodarone can be used together without significant risk of synergistic toxicities. So they, we often end up using them uh, together. So procainamide, another class one antiarrhythmic, um, is probably the most potent medication we have for VT. However, in patients with renal dysfunction, the active metabolite NAPA can build up, leading to toxicities and some of the same issues with the drug not washing out prior to an ablation. So for those reasons, we typically reserve procainamide for patients in whom lidocaine is not effective. We used to use it more, but we tend to favor lidocaine currently. Um, just other options, Esmolol is a very short-acting IV beta blocker, so it might be used for patients with an automatic VT, not a SCAR-mediated. Those, um, you know, that makes up a minority of the patients that would be in the cardiac ICU, certainly. Uh, most patients with an automatic VT, which we're not going to get into this too much, are probably stable for the floor. Um, Esmolol might also be used for patients with polymorphic VT due to ischemia and maybe as a trial to see if a patient can tolerate a long-acting beta blockade or sympatholysis. So in conclusion, at our center, um, where many patients will undergo VT ablation prior to discharge, lidocaine is a reasonable first option in most patients, and amiodarone can be added for refractory cases. 
Um, if a patient is given IV amiodarone to terminate VT, either by you or by the ER or by an outside hospital, it may be reasonable to stop the amiodarone and place them on a lidocaine drip if it seems to be effective. Okay, that was a really helpful rundown of all the chemical options we have to manage VT. So in this particular case, we decided to use a lidocaine bolus and start the patient on a drip, and his VT stabilizes. So Dr. Montgomery, how does the morphology of VT, whether it's monomorphic or polymorphic, change your initial diagnostic approach in terms of the patient's workup? Yes, so this is a hugely important uh, detail. So polymorphic VT does not have a consistent morphology or appearance, and it tends to be ephemeral in the sense that it either resolves or degenerates into ventricular fibrillation, which is higher frequency and lower amplitude. Um, And and really, there's not a clear dividing line between polymorphic VT and V-fib. There's sort of a, it's a continuum between the two. Um, And there are a few things that can cause polymorphic VT. The most common is active ischemia. If patients are having polymorphic VT and or VF, ischemia and acute infarct should be strongly considered. Um, The second most likely reason for polymorphic VT is torsade due to acquired long QT. Polymorphic VT can also be seen as a consequence of severe heart failure. Um, Also, genetic conditions, including hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and Brugada syndrome, and a few other things. Monomorphic VT, on the other hand, has a consistent QRS morphology and is typically regular in appearance and rate, and so it's just sort of a a continuing, repeating pattern across the page. So monomorphic VT is most often due to re-entry, Uh, most often through an area of heterogeneous scar, so sort of going around and around the same circuit over and over again. Monomorphic VT can also be automatic or arising from sort of an angry patch of cells, let's say, Um, and that can be seen in structurally normal hearts. But in our 65-year-old man with prior bypass surgery, scar-mediated reentrant VT would not be terribly unexpected and uh, would be the most common reason um, for VT, and also more common than SVT with aberrancy as a, co- as a cause of his wide complex tachycardia. Got it. Okay, so that's a very helpful way of breaking down the classification of VT. In terms of the practicalities in diagnostic workup, if the VT is polymorphic, what should the resident check next? So if the patient's conscious, the history is important. Um, for instance, if your patient had chest pain or pressure prior to any you know, subjective arrhythmia, or if they're having chest pain or pressure in sinus rhythm in front of you, then acute infarct should be very high on the list and should really be assumed. Um, the exam is going to primarily focus on a volume assessment. You know, of course, the entire exam is important, but the volume assessment would probably be the most important part. Uh, a sinus rhythm EKG is hugely important here. It can immediately help to determine the likely cause by assessing um, the QT interval, but also looking for signs of ischemia and infarct, looking for signs of severe LVH, which would suggest hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, looking for a Brugada pattern, or even looking for an old infarct. All of those things would be relevant on a sinus rhythm EKG. Um, In addition to the EKG and the exam, STAT electrolytes, cardiac enzymes, and probably a BNP should be obtained. Um, And if your patient has signs or symptoms of ischemia or infarct, and is having polymorphic VT, it's usually reasonable for them to go emergently to the cath lab. Now, if your patient has a significantly prolonged QT, 
and you think that they're having torsade, then giving IV magnesium, repleting potassium, um, and holding QT, prolonging drugs are the first treatment goals. If your patient has a pacemaker or ICD and is having torsade, then pacing faster, maybe around 90 to 100 beats a minute, um, is often helpful to prevent recurrent, recurrent torsade. Okay. And if the ventricular tachycardia is monomorphic, what should the resident check next? Yeah, so because monomorphic VT most often uses an old fixed scar um, rather than just sort of arises from an ischemic area, it's not typically the result of acute ischemia or infarct, though it is possible that PVCs caused by ischemia can induce VT that uses a pre-existing scar. So, you know, triggers for monomorphic VT can also include electrolyte derangements, volume overload, um, or even just end-stage pump failure. It is possible that a patient can have monomorphic VT with no discernible trigger. So interestingly, infarct scars typically take more than five years to remodel to the point where they can support monomorphic VT for most patients who develop VT. So in addition to an EKG of sinus rhythm, um, just like we did for polymorphic VT, the same labs are relevant as well. So stat electrolytes, cardiac enzymes, BNP, though of course BNP is not really the best way or, or you know, the most important way to, to, to determine a patient's volume status. Um, it is still helpful. An echocardiogram is, is a good idea uh, to assess the overall ejection fraction and also look for a possible location of a prior MI um, or other structural abnormalities that might be present. Okay. I feel like a common question that comes up on rounds in the management of VT patients is who needs a cath and how urgently they need to go for the cath. Oftentimes, though, if the VT is monomorphic, ischemia seems to be lower on the differential, as you just described. But is all monomorphic VT non-ischemic? Or put another way, who goes to the cath lab with VT? So any patient who's having sustained polymorphic VT or ventricular fibrillation should be considered very strongly for the cath lab. And that is because acute ischemia, and especially acute infarct, can cause um, polymorphic VT and ventricular fibrillation in a relatively high percentage of patients. However, monomorphic VT, um, while it might be triggered by ischemia in the sense that ischemia might cause the PVC that gets you into monomorphic VT, um, the monomorphic VT itself can't be supported by ischemia alone. It usually uses a pre-existing scar um, from either from a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy or a prior infarct. So for a patient with monomorphic VT, if the VTs come on suddenly and the patient hasn't had an ischemic eval recently, it may be reasonable to perform a cath. However, it's typically not emergent unless there are other findings from the history, EKG, or labs suggesting that an acute infarct is present. Okay, got it. That makes sense. So back to our patient, um, despite the lidocaine drip, he develops recurrent sustained monomorphic VT, but he's t clinically tolerating it well enough to not necessitate cardioversion or any other urgent intervention. So an amiodarone bolus and drip is initiated. Uh, unfortunately, this does not break or improve the monomorphic VT. So now what do we do? So this patient has refractory VT storm that's not controlled on two antiarrhythmics. Um, of course, an arrhythmia consult should be obtained if it hasn't been already. Critical care options at this point include switching to procainamide and or intubation with deep sedation. So both options have a reasonable chance of success, though both can only be used as a bridge to some other definitive therapy. 
As I already discussed, procainamide is probably the most potent IV antiarrhythmic for VT storm. Um, IV infusion can cause hypotension, and the active metabolite NAPA builds up in those with renal dysfunction and can cause torsade and non-inducibility of VT. Um, however, in a situation like this, you know, switching to procainamide may be, may be worthwhile in order to control VT and prevent recurrent shocks. Um, now, daily monitoring of procainamide and NAPA levels is recommended, though the turnaround time for these labs varies. Sometimes the turnaround for the labs is a few days, which makes it a little bit hard to act on that information. And so the, and that timing of labs tends to vary through time. And I, you know, so it's hard for me to predict um, months from now what we're going to be doing. So another option is intubation with deep sedation. Um, in addition to just spearing your patient the experience of repeated I, uh, ICD shocks and repeated episodes of VT. Um, so it can also just be antiarrhythmic in and of itself. So deep sedation can prevent VT. The goal is often deeper sedation than what is typically used for patients who are intubated for respiratory failure, um, RAS negative 4 maybe. The primary mechanism of action is probably through sympatholysis. Okay. So in our case, the patient is subsequently intubated, deeply sedated, and continued on amiodarone and lidocaine, and his VT is finally stabilized. But at this point, we're searching for a more durable management option, and the possibility of a VT ablation is raised. So, Dr. Montgomery, who gets a VT ablation? So, VT ablation is a reasonable therapy for anybody with monomorphic VT, especially if that VT is due to ischemic heart disease, and especially if the VT is refractory to an antiarrhythmic. In a situation like this one, where your patient is requiring multiple IV antiarrhythmics and deep sedation, a VT ablation is sort of a... A no-brainer unless there's a major reason they can't the that your patient can't be ablated. Um, in the Vanish trial, 259 patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy and VT already on an antiarrhythmic were randomized to a VT ablation versus just escalation of antiarrhythmics. Um, VT ablation was superior to antiarrhythmic escalation for the composite primary endpoint of death, VT storm, or ICD shock. And this was driven primarily by a large benefit in those already on amiodarone. Now, in terms of safety, this trial saw two cardiac perforations and three major bleeds in the ablation group, though none of these were fatal. But it also saw three deaths attributed to amiodarone toxicity, two pulmonary and one hepatic. And so this is, the, uh, this is a double-edged sword of amiodarone with ongoing therapy. It is a potentially fatal drug. So for patients who are not yet on an antiarrhythmic, who were not then enrolled in the VANISH trial, we expect that the ongoing VANISH 2 trial will help us decide the best initial approach. And so that is a similar trial, but for patients who have not been exposed to an antiarrhythmic. So all of that applies to ischemic cardiomyopathy. For non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, the indications for ablation and the drugs we use are approximately the same. However, from my standpoint, VT ablation is sometimes more difficult and more often requires non-standard techniques in those with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy as opposed to ischemic. And that's because the scars are often patchier. They might be multiple small scars instead of one big one. Um, it's because the scars tend to be mid-myocardial or even epicardial in nature rather than, than primarily on the endocardium where we can easily reach. And so that's the potential benefit of a VT ablation, but what is this procedure? So a VT ablation is a procedure in which femoral access, either arterial or venous, 
um, is used to advance catheters to the heart to map the VT focus, or more often an area of scar, which is serving as part of a VT circuit. So ablation then uses high-frequency electrical energy at 30 to 50 watts delivered from a catheter tip to heat an area of tissue to create a homogeneous scar. So typically, the area of focus includes small myocardial bundles that allow serpentine wave fronts of depolarization to move through a scar relatively slowly. And we can't see these muscle bundles directly, but they're inferred from, among other things, low amplitude and late-activating signals occurring during sinus rhythm. In order to have this procedure performed, your patient needs to be NPO, and anticoagulants are typically held for a short period of time prior to the procedure. Antiarrhythmics are held as well, with lidocaine being held 8 to 12 hours and other antiarrhythmics held at least that long. Amiodarone is virtually impossible to wash out due to its extremely long half-life, so we try to use it sparingly in patients destined for a VT ablation. A common scenario is a patient on a lidocaine drip, which is held starting at midnight for an 8 a.m. procedure. That might be, you know, sort of your, uh, your standard case. Most VTEs are ablated in the left ventricle, and access can be obtained transeptal via the right atrium or by advancing the catheter retrograde or against the flow of blood from the right femoral artery all the way over the aortic arch and then down through the aortic valve. I see. So our patient undergoes a successful VT ablation. Uh, and it's returned back to the CVICU. So Dr. Montgomery, our residents commonly have to manage post-ablation patients overnight. So what clinical considerations should house staff keep in mind when they're monitoring a patient after a VT ablation? So the VT patients that you see in the cardiac ICU are typically ill in general. Uh, They're more ill than the VT ablations that we bring in from home. Um, But most patients tolerate the procedure fairly well. The most common complication from a VT ablation is access site bleeding or hematoma, and the risk is higher on patients with arterial access. Um, Any cardiac procedure also carries a risk of tamponade, and any left-sided cardiac procedure, meaning a procedure that accesses the left atrium or left ventricle, um, includes a risk for stroke or myocardial infarction, though these risks are low. After a VT ablation, house staff should be monitoring for any bleeding or hematoma from the access site. Any drop in blood pressure warrants an immediate reassessment of the access sites and a bedside echo to assess for a pericardial effusion. Chest pain is not typically present after a VT ablation, so chest pain should be taken seriously. The exception to this is if a patient had epicardial access, which is essentially a pericardiocentesis, which is performed in order to put catheters into the pericardial space that can map and ablate the outer or epicardial surface of the heart. These patients typically do have chest pain, which is treated with colchicine. If a patient has VT shortly after a VT ablation, the treatment is typically the same, with reinitiation of a lidocaine drip being the most common first step. Post-procedural VT can be transient, but it often necessitates continued antiarrhythmics or reablation. So we've talked through, just in this one case, unstable versus stable VT are different chemical management options, including amiodarone, lidocaine, and procainamide, as well as our electrical options, including cardioversion and antitechocardic pacing. We've also walked through the indications for VT ablation, how the procedure is performed, and some of the things to keep in mind after an ablation from a house staff standpoint. So Dr. Montgomery, in your opinion, what are the key points that our house staff should remember before starting a rotation in the CVICU and managing patients with ventricular tachycardia? 
Sure. Uh, so VT can be monomorphic or polymorphic, and polymorphic VT is most commonly associated with acute ischemia or infarct or in the setting of a long QT. Monomorphic VT is most often the result of a reentry through a scar in those with structural heart disease or an automatic focus in those with structurally normal hearts. VT in the CCU is typically managed initially with antiarrhythmics, though pace termination or cardioversion may sometimes be needed depending on the clinical scenario. VT ablation is often considered for patients who present to the hospital with sustained VT, especially if the VT is in the setting of a prior infarct scar or if they are refractory to an antiarrhythmic. The VANISH trial tells us that VT ablation is superior to drug escalation in patients already on amiodarone. All right. Well, thank you so much for your thoughts and your time, Dr. Montgomery. This was a fantastic overview of the approach to VT that I'm sure our residents will find very helpful before they rotate at the CVICU. Thank you so much for being here with us today, and we hope you all enjoyed this podcast. Thanks. Thanks.